Hey, welcome everybody to part number three of this message series we called When Pigs Fly. If you're a guest with us or just back for the first time in a long time, I can catch us up real quickly here. A couple of weeks ago, we started exploring the miracles of Jesus, quite frankly, because I believe God wants to do now what he did then. And uh, in fact, John fourteen twelve says we're going to do even greater things than Jesus did. So that's crazy to think about. But the overarching theme within this group of messages is that miracles are happening all around us all the time, but you won't see them if you don't know how to look for them. So my goal has been to try and help teach you how to see miracles and learn how to look for miracles and therefore experience miracles. Some people might say that they don't need a miracle. So what's the point of seeing them? But I want you to know that the miracles of God make us appreciate the mystery of God. I hope you realize that God is more than a subject to be studied. He is a Savior meant to be celebrated. And there is nothing more exciting than celebrating an event that is otherwise unexplainable. So, in order for us to aid us in this endeavor of exploring miracles and seeing miracles, I've told you a couple things. First of all, I said that uh, many of us miss miracles because we are stuck in our own assumptions. told you we miss what is because we're stuck in what was. We've got to learn how to be present in our present. And secondly, I tried to show you that many of us miss miracles because we are unwilling to give up our old habits in exchange for new ones. told you last week that if you want God to do something new, then you've got to quit doing uh, everything old. You know, if you want God to do a new thing, you've got to quit doing the same old thing. If you don't like the fruit you're harvesting in life, then you've got to plant some new seeds. This morning, we're continuing the conversation with a message I'm calling Waltzing on the Waves of Life. Surely you realize by now that life has ups and downs. Sometimes it just feels like it's coming at you wave upon wave. It's like that Pat Green song, you came upon me wave on wave, and it's like you can't get ahead. Things just keep happening and happening and happening, but I believe God wants to speak to you this morning and show you not just how you can walk through life and get through some of those waves, but rather I think God wants to teach you how you can dance and waltz on these proverbial waves of life. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. You can go ahead and grab it. Make your way to John chapter 6. While you're getting there, I want to help you understand a miracle inside of the miracle that we're about to read. Most of us experience this miracle on a daily basis, so we don't really consider it a miracle. That's because the ordinary often gets overlooked. But I want you to consider the miracle of walking. This phenomenon is all the more compelling if you have ever seen a child learn how to walk. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They look like little tiny drunk sailors on a boat during a storm. They can't quite figure everything out. But when you understand the physics of walking, you realize how supernatural the activity really is. At any given moment during a walk or a run, our brain is coordinating the movements of literally hundreds of muscles throughout our body. 
It's not just the muscles of the legs and feet, but those of the torso, shoulders, arms, and necks, all of which stabilize us during forward movement. It's why your kids look like this when they learn how to walk. Like Frankenstein trying to get some kind of zombie because your body has hundreds of muscles that it has to learn how to coordinate in order for you to walk. But did you know within your muscles there are specialized nerve cells known as proprioceptors that sense positional changes in your muscles and joints? I like to refer to them as my spidey senses. But they send information to your vestibular system, which in case you're unfamiliar, the VS is the extraordinary balancing apparatus in your inner ear. These fluid-filled tubes detect rotational head movements both vertically and horizontally. So if you lift your head up or side to side, these gyroscopes, these fluid-filled tubes in your ears are allowing you to stay on balance. And so if your muscles and joints sense uneven terrain, these proprioceptors send that information to your brain, to your ears, to adjust this fluid so you don't fall down. What? And you've never experienced a miracle? I haven't even talked about your eyes. Your eyes send information to your brain on where your body is in space and what hazards lie ahead and how fast objects are moving towards you which all of these systems are working together with precisely no conscious thought on your part. You've never once thought to yourself, okay now, foot, giddy up. Here, here we go. And you've never once thought to your inner ear, okay, fluid, start adjusting yourself, move around, fire now, proprioceptor things. So that I can stay on balance. You've never consciously done that. You've just walked. With that in mind, let's turn our attention to John chapter 6. I want to pick it up in verse 16. It reads, That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for Him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on water toward the boat. They were terrified, as you would be if Aquaman started coming for you know, when you're out on the lake and some man starts hovering on the water. But he called out to them, Don't be afraid, I am here. Then they were eager to let him into the boat, and immediately they arrived at their destination. So depending how you look at it, we've actually got three miracles in this story. It's the uh, miracle of walking. Uh, it's like these Russian dolls, you know what I'm saying? Like they take one out and there's a miracle and there's another miracle and the miracle. You got the miracle of walking. You got the miracle of walking on water at night during a hurricane. And then you've got teleportation. Like that's in the Bible. We, we see them three or four miles on into the lake. We know that the lake is seven miles wide. And when Jesus gets into the boat, suddenly they're on the other side. 
What is happening within the Bible? God, thank you for your word. Help us understand it now. Do what only you can do and speak to our hearts. Encourage us. Let us leave this place different than how we came in. One step closer to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever watched that show on the Discovery Channel called Mythbusters. I think it's actually on the Science Channel now, but it started in 2003. Essentially, the whole point of the program was to find out if rumors, myths, and legends were true. The producers of the show wanted to know super important stuff, like can you beat a radar detector if you covered your car in tinfoil? You cannot, okay, if you want to try that. That's a lot of foil, but whatever, you can't. What common household items are bulletproof? We all need to know that. Uh, Real life stuff, like could a playing card kill a person if it was thrown hard enough? Thank you, Gambit of the X-Men, for encouraging that. But I bring up the the show because on a specific episode of Mythbusters, they tested the theory, can people walk on water? The legend of water walking is not just limited to Jesus. It was supposed that ninjas could walk on water. If you're a true fan of kung fu movies, you have seen this happen where they run across a lake. The idea became folklore because historians actually found out that these mysterious ninja warriors would put logs underneath water that was outside of their dojo. So if anybody was spying on them, they would see them run across the water. And then they would be very afraid and they would not want to attack somebody who can walk on water. I'm sure you've seen the video of the magician Chris Angel walking on water. Other magicians have done the same thing, albeit it was later discovered that there was glass under the water and the spectators were all part of the trick. And so they made it look like they were so shocked that somebody was walking on water when in fact it was just a trick. So like many of the tricks, it was all very explainable. But the Mythbusters, Adam and Jamie, they wanted to know, is there any factual basis for people walking on water? Can you do it? In the end, spoiler alert, hate to disappoint you, no. You cannot walk on water, myth busted. That is because the density of water is one gram per cubic centimeter at four degrees Celsius, which means quite simply that human beings sink in water. Uh, It cannot support you. The surface tension of water can support like little lizards and bugs and things like that, but the human species, we are not well equipped for water walking. Now, if you could sprint 67 miles per hour, you could run across the water But the fastest foot speed on record, uh, Usain Bolt, Jamaican gold medalist, is 27.79 miles per hour. In case you're interested in breaking that record, you need to know to sprint at 67 miles per hour would require 15 times more energy than the human body is capable of expending. Don't want to crush your dreams, but you would explode before you could accomplish that feat. Guess on the water would be the appropriate place for your body to explode which is disgusting to think about, but here's my point. Walking on solid ground is astounding. Walking on water is amazing. 
Walking on water during a windstorm is nothing short of miraculous. What I want you to know is Jesus didn't just walk on the water. He waltzed on the waves and He wants the same for you. Now, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting that Jesus wants you to stroll up here and try and walk across the water or when you leave here today, you know, walk across a puddle or your neighbor's pool. No, every miracle of Jesus was meant to demonstrate who He was, which is God in the flesh. Furthermore, every miracle God did through the apostles and every miracle God might do through you or you might experience was meant to point people back to Jesus. So when I say Jesus wants you to waltz on the waves of life, I don't believe that includes walking on water, although it could. God can do whatever He wants, but at the end of the day, miracles are not for your benefit alone. They're meant for us and the people around us to be pushed into a deeper relationship with God. God is the point of the miracle, which you know how many times somebody walked on water in Scripture? One time. This is it. Jesus walks on water. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Peter walked on water. Well, that's the same story as this one. Our boy John didn't record Peter getting out of the boat, but Matthew and Mark both did. And Peter did not fare any better than any of us would. Why? Because sometimes your expectations can be the enemy of God's intention. Jot that down. Expectations can be the enemy of God's intention. If your expectation is that God will do a miracle to benefit you, kind of like Peter's expectation was that he could just walk on water When he got out of the boat, you're missing the point. And if your expectation is that God no longer does miracles, again, you're missing out on what's available to you as a believer in Jesus because He might call you out of the boat. He might want to do a miracle in your life. He he might want to do a miracle through you in somebody else's life. Jesus said, it's better for me to leave you and send you my helper, the Holy Spirit, and so we believe that God still does miracles now. And like I said, John fourteen twelve says you might do even more miracles than Jesus. What does that look like? We're going to talk about that. But let me show you something in our passage and then give you an example of how this plays out in actual human life. In order to put this into context, we need to look at the very beginning of John chapter 6. If you look at verse 1, you'll find that Jesus is preaching to about 10,000 people. They only counted men back then. They counted 5,000 men, but it's not outside the realm of possibility with wives and children that there were over 10,000 people listening to Jesus preach on this mountain where they found themselves. Conservative estimate would be 10,000 people. Jesus apparently had a lot to say because the people are there a while and the disciples come up to Jesus and they're like, bro, we got to send these people out of here. It's about supper time. They're going to need something to eat. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. I'm not done talking. They go, dude, we ain't got got enough money to buy enough food to feed all these people, nor do we have enough food for all of that. So Jesus queries, what do you have? Andrew, a disciple, looks around and says, there's a little kid here. 
He's got his Transformers lunchbox and the Lunchable. Well, we could take that. Five loaves, two fish. It's clearly not enough for everybody. Except when you have Jesus, it is enough for everybody. Jesus looks to heaven and prays to God, and he starts breaking bread and passing out fish. There's more than enough to go around. As a matter of fact, five loaves and two fish feed over 10,000 people, and they got take-home boxes and leftovers. Twelve boxes worth. But then watch this, verse 14. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Which is where we found ourselves in our passage when his disciples are waiting for him in verse 16. One of the other gospel accounts that records this event, Matthew and Mark, both say that Jesus is the one who sent his disciples away after he disappeared. Now the question you should be asking yourself is, didn't he know there was going to be a storm? I mean, if he can somehow slip away from 10,000 people without them knowing... And if he can scurry across the water, why would he intentionally send the disciples onto the water during a typhoon? Because our expectations can be the enemy of God's intention. See, he wasn't deliberately sending them into danger. He was rescuing them from an even greater danger. The danger of being swept away by a fanatical crowd. Some of the disciples wanted the exact same things these people wanted. King Jesus of Jerusalem. They would have rejoiced at the opportunity to become second in command, third in command, powerful forces in the Middle East. In fact, in more than one passage, on one more than one occasion, we've defined the disciples arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. And if Jesus is king... Come on, they're the greatest people in all of the world. So Jesus had to send them away because their expectation was a conquering king of Israel when God's intention was a conquering king of the universe. One day going to come back and make all things right. Our expectations don't always line up with God's intention. Sometimes we put God in a box. And no one puts a baby in a corner. You know what I'm saying? Give you a different example. This might be more applicable. A couple months ago, the Barnabas Fund reported an event that Boko Haram terrorists captured 76 Muslim background believers who had subsequently turned to Christ. In Islam, if you turn to Christianity, it is punishable by death. So within these 76 captives were four men. They were told to renounce their faith in Jesus and revert back to Islam or they would be executed in front of their families. They refused and they were shot. The wives of the four men and the rest of the women within the 70, now two captives, uh, and the children were all told to renounce their faith or the children would be executed the following morning. They were given the night to think about it. That's when something remarkable happened. The children in the group told the women that the Lord Jesus appeared to them overnight, told them all would be well. They were told not to fear and that He would protect them and they should not renounce their faith, but stay strong knowing that He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
So the next morning, terrorists lined the children up against the wall. They told the women they should, they could save the kids if they would only renounce Jesus Christ and turn to Islam. The mothers refused. The soldiers got ready to fire, but at the moment they were going to, they dropped their rifles. They started to grab their heads, screaming, snakes, snakes. And some of the soldiers ran away, but the commanders of these soldiers dropped dead where they stood. After one soldier dropped his weapon in fear, one of the women attempted to pick it up and begin firing on the fleeing terrorists. But she stopped when a four-year-old child told her about the angels who were protecting them. Here's the exact quote from the Barnabas Fund story. You don't need to do that. Can you not see the men in white fighting for us? Now that story is hard for us to believe because we've never seen anything like that happen. So our experience, in addition to our expectation, can be the enemy of God's intention. Listen to me now. God's intention has always been to spread His gospel of love. That He wants a relationship with you. That He wants to be an active part of your life. But that can't happen without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus who washes away your sin because your sin is separating you from God. And God has made a way for you to be restored into this relationship with this sacrifice of Jesus. That's what we're actually getting ready to celebrate today. Going from death to life. Washing your sins away. This is what baptism is all about. And God has made a way for you to be in a relationship with Him and have your life transformed by Him. And it has nothing to do with you. And it has everything to do with what Jesus did for you. Because God loves you. Just because you're not seeing it does not mean it isn't happening. God demonstrates His power by displaying His power through miracles. I would encourage you when you read the Bible, make a note of how many times God says, for my name's sake. And because I did this for my glory. When you start looking through those lenses, it's rather remarkable. God is for God, and rightfully so. In other words, don't put God in a box or you're going to miss His miracles. My job is to teach you how to look for them so you can see them, and you've got to realize they're happening. And you need to be looking for them. Plus, it's not just because of our expectations that we miss miracles. Notice how the disciples' first response here was fear. Verse 19 says, When they saw Jesus, they were frightened because we fear things we don't have a memory to go along with. I'll say it this way. What the eye sees is determined by what the brain has learned. Except did you know that science has proven that you're actually only born with two fears? The fear of falling... The fear of loud noises. It's the only thing that they can find that you are born being afraid of. Which means, if your uh, all other fears are learned, which means if they're learned, they can be unlearned. Right? And so you have nothing to fear. So write this down. The same stimulus that will trigger fear in some people will trigger faith in others. Same stimulus triggers fear in some people. It will trigger faith in others. It triggered fear 
For 11 of the 12 disciples, it triggered faith for one. Peter says, God, if that's you, Jesus, if that's actually you, call me out on the waves. Jesus says, come on then. Here's maybe a more practical example of fear and faith. A couple years ago, watched a 60 Minutes episode about a kid named Alex Arnold. Don't know if you've heard of him. Here's a picture of him. He's a rock climber, professional rock climber. He's rather unique because when he climbs, he doesn't use ropes. There's a documentary that just came out about it called Free Solo. It's about Alex and this type of rock climbing with no ropes is called free soloing. But what made Alex recently famous is uh, that he is the only person to climb a mountain in uh, Yellowstone called Al Capitan. There's some pictures here that you can see of him. Uh, He climbed 3,000 feet up a sheer granite cliff with no ropes. Scientists were intrigued by this because climbing that high with no ropes on that sort of surface is arguably a terrifying concept. Look at some of these pictures. Look how high he is above the ground. That sometimes there's nothing more than his index finger and thumb holding on to a little ledge, keeping him on the face of the rock. If you slip, you die. How is Alex able to control his emotions and fears? Scientists were wondering the exact same thing. So they put him through a battery of tests and an MRI. They found that the part of his brain which controls fear did not fire in the same way that it does for most people. Somehow, Alex had managed to effectively shut off fear. Told you, if you fear is learned, it can be unlearned. They wanted to know, how did he do it? Here's his exact quote. It's not that I can control fear. It's that I prepare in such a way that it's not scary anymore. I rehearse the movements literally thousands of times with a rope, so when I didn't have a rope, the movements were natural. What? Climbing 3,000 feet is natural? But God brought somebody here to church to set them free just for this reason, because all you got to do is prepare your life in such a way that things aren't scary anymore. How do you do that? Well, let me push this a little further because the disciples are afraid when they don't recognize Jesus. They thought he was a ghost. And the real reason they don't recognize him is because they weren't looking for him. He showed up in a place they least expected. The same thing is true for you. Jesus will meet you right where you are doesn't matter what's happening around you and what you're going through. Jesus will meet you where you're at and He will take you through the storm. Can I hear a better amen, somebody? This is the whole point of you being in a relationship with God. That He wants to help rescue you from the things that are happening in life. But the best preparation for your fear is to invite Jesus into your fearfulness. That He's the one that gives you the power to get through the things that are happening in life. Look what it says when they're afraid. Look what Jesus says when these disciples are afraid. It's recorded for us as, it is I, but that's not actually a very good translation. What Jesus actually says is, ego, I am me. I am That's the actual translation. I am. The reason the translators couldn't put that in your Bible is because you're reading that, you would say, what? 
Yeah, of course he is. I mean, there he is. Why would he say such a thing? And what you need to know is that when Jesus says, I am, he's giving the divine name of God as his own name. You need to know that when God shows up to Moses way back in Exodus 3.14 and Moses asks God his identity, who are you, voice in the bush that's being consumed, not consumed by fire, but it's on fire and you're talking to me, who are you? And God says, I am. And when God says, I am, first of all, he's saying, I was, has no meaning to me because I have no beginning. I am, and I will be, doesn't make sense, because I will never change. You can never say God will be something, because to will be means other than I'm going to be now. So when Jesus says, I am, he's not only saying I have no beginning, but he's also saying I'm perfect, I will not change, I am equal with God. It's rather profound and incredible Jesus making a very enormous claim. He's saying the reason you don't have to be afraid is because I am the transcendent God. I created the world. I existed before anything else existed. I'm the author and sustainer of life. In case you don't believe it, look at me waltzing around on these waves. And then he did a little twirl just to prove that he could do it. Like, see, God, that was Jesus doing that. He probably got a little higher than I just got. So here's my question for you as we get ready to close and start getting ready to witness people make the declaration that I'm not afraid. Jesus is Lord of my life. Are you willing, this is my question, are you willing to bring Jesus into your proverbial life boat. He sent you out to the sea. He's right there with you. But are you willing to get out of the boat during the storm and waltz on the waves of life? The same stimulus that causes fear in some people will trigger faith in others if you invite Jesus to be part of your life. And sometimes your expectations can be the enemy of God's intention. Do you believe God is who He said He was? That Jesus did what He said He would do? And that the Holy Spirit is living inside of you? If you do, then you can change the world. You can see miracles. You can be part of God's redemption story where He is in this world working, trying to gather as many people who are willing to be a part of His family as possible. You get the opportunity to play a part. So here's the bottom line. Don't seek miracles. Follow Jesus. And if you follow Jesus long enough and far enough, you'll find yourself in the middle of some miracles. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we even have to come and gather in this place. Thank you for the power that we possess because of your Holy Spirit living inside of us as believers in Jesus. 
God, we trust your word. We believe that you said we would be part of miracles and that we would see even greater things than what Jesus did. God, we don't always know how to look for these things. We're just asking you to open our eyes to begin to see them. Some of the miracles that you want to do are just changing our lives, drawing us closer to you. I believe that God brought you here this morning for a reason. You might have thought that it was to witness a baptism when in reality God is speaking to you. And He wants you to be part of His story. I would just encourage you to not let this moment pass you by. Listen to that voice that's speaking to you. Where's God leading you? What are your next steps? God might have brought you here to be baptized yourself. Came here dry, you need to leave wet. Fear and faith. Others of you, God's trying to talk to you about your marriage, your children, money, whatever it is. Don't shut that voice out. Some of you might have been in church your whole life and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Say, God, I surrender my life to you. I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. Help me live for you. Thank you for saving me. I repent of my sin. Make me new. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.